everybody, and welcome back to my corner of the internet, where philosophy, psychology, and a good dose of whatever the heck I'm learning these days combine to give you a fresh perspective and food for thought. I'm so honored that you've chosen to spend a moment with me today, and I hope you learn something. If you do, don't be selfish. Share this episode with a friend so they can learn too. I'm Francesca, and this is The View from My Soapbox. People say it all the time. I'm really working on myself lately. They say it the same way you'd say, oh, I'm working on my back deck this weekend. Like it's some tangible task that can and needs to be completed. Is it? Back up, because there are two questions hidden in there. Firstly, is working on yourself a tangible task? And secondly, can it ever be completed? Tough questions. In this episode and the next, these are the ideas we're going to explore. First, let's demystify the super abstract turn of phrase. When you hear, I'm working on myself, you probably intuitively know that this person is trying to be a better person, or they're trying to work on some aspect of their mental health. This here is a many-layered onion. The reason this is so confusing is that your brain is not like your back deck. You can't take a hammer, some nails, and a fresh coat of paint to it and go, yep, that's all fixed up now. Unfortunately. What you're dealing with isn't some physical thing outside you that needs physical work. It's what's inside you. It's the very water you swim in. How the heck do you work on your own thoughts, feelings, cognitions, fears, assumptions, scripts, all that stuff, when it's all inside you and you're in the soup? (laughs) If this feels scary and confusing to you, you are not alone. And I think I have some insights that might help you figure out at least where you need to start. There's something else I want to add before we get into it. There's definitely a chance that as you listen to this episode, you think, man, I can't relate at all. Who thinks like this? If this is the case, that is great for you, because we're going to be talking about some pretty toxic scripts and thought processes, and I don't wish these things on anyone. But this episode goes out to all of you who do know what I'm talking about, who do struggle with this, who do feel isolated and alienated by your own brains and wish that things like self-love, compassion, and acceptance came easily to you. And if I can help just one person by talking about this, if I can make just one of you feel a little less alone today by making myself feel vulnerable, it is worth the risk of sounding irrelevant to people blessed with stable mental health. And if you are blessed in this way, Maybe this show will help you understand a little better how a loved one who does struggle with this thinks, and how you can be there for them and make them feel heard. And a quick disclaimer, I want to remind you all again that I'm not a mental health professional in any way. I do have some very basic training and education in mental health, trauma, and psychology, and everything I say on this show is well-researched. However, this podcast is not meant to replace professional treatment or medical advice. If you think you can benefit from professional help, You probably could, and I encourage you to look into the resources available to you, because that is what will probably help you the most. We'll get into what this can look like later, but for now, I just want to emphasize that you should see me as more of a peer on this journey, who wants you to stick with it, not as a substitute for therapy. (laughs) Okay, so as you know, if you know me or this podcast at all, I am a huge advocate for investing time in yourself to learn about how you think to develop self-awareness, to take responsibility, and ultimately grow into the best and most compassionate version of yourself that you can be. In my opinion, that's what working on yourself boils down to. 
but there are a few major myths we've got to debunk about all the self-improvement work before we can really get started, and that's what we're going to focus on the first part of this two-part series. The first myth about working on yourself that desperately needs debunking is that working on yourself means fixing yourself. To think this, I'm sorry to say it, is to miss the point. No matter how much you're struggling, you are not broken. You don't need fixing. Although thinking about fixing yourself is, you know, a little toxic, it is natural and important to think about how to improve in the areas you want to improve on. The simple reality is that you are human, you are complicated, and the chances are that you have flaws that hold you back from achieving certain things that you might otherwise want to achieve. And I'm not just talking about getting good grades in school or making a team. Sometimes your barrier are with simple everyday things, which can be really alienating. Whether you struggle with persistently low moods, grieving, unstable relationships, stress, an eating disorder, emotional burnout, even falling asleep at night, or if you heard that and went, yep, all of the above, <laughs> there are countless things that we battle with, often in private, and just accept because, I don't know, maybe it's because we don't know any better, maybe we're afraid to talk about it, maybe it's because we don't believe we're worthy or capable of getting better. I want to tell you right now, that is not true, and suffering is not the only way. Okay, deep breath, y'all, because I'm going to get heavy for a second. Pain is inevitable in life, because to live is to encounter both the good and the bad of this tremendously complicated human world, but suffering is optional. What are you saying, Francesca? How can suffering be optional? Suffering is optional. The difference between pain and suffering is that pain is the natural and healthy response to difficult life events, but suffering is the tension we create in response to pain. It's resistance, denial, rumination. As my old therapist used to say, suffering is what you put yourself through when you refuse or don't know how to get unstuck from the pain. This might sound like a tangent, but I promise it's related, and here's how. Suffering is what we're working on when we say we're working on ourselves. It's the part of going through struggles that we inflict on ourselves. And it's the only part of life's challenges that we can control. You know, like Tony Robbins says, 90% of life is what happens, 5% or 10% or whatever is how you react. If we choose to invest time and energy into relieving our suffering, only then do we realize our potential as human beings. This potential is everything that we have within us when we're not held back by the unhelpful, shaming thoughts that we have that keep us stuck in the suffer soup. This doesn't mean you're broken. This doesn't mean you need to be fixed. It just means that you're not living in your highest self until you're willing to do the work, peel back all the layers, feel all the things, and climb out of the soup to discover the incredible person that's been simmering in there all these years. You were always that incredible person throughout all your suffering, throughout whatever it is, your addiction, your trauma, your mental illness. Working on yourself doesn't mean you have to hate who you are right now or who you were before. In fact, I really believe that you can't grow at all unless you're standing on a platform of self-love and acceptance. It just means you recognize your limitations and recognize from a place of self-love that you are worthy of happiness that can come from overcoming them. I say all this like it's easy, but for many of us, it is hard, hard work. But that's just like anything else that is worth doing in life. The second myth about working on yourself, which is related to the first, 
is that there is a destination to the self-work. Many of you who've struggled with mental health probably bought into this at one point or other. We think to ourselves, everything will be better when I'm stable. Everything will be better when I'm cured of my, you know, insert anything. I'll be happy once I get there. This is a myth because the deep personal growth I'm talking about here has no destination. If this isn't what you wanted to hear, sorry, but you need to hear it. One of my favorite quotes is from Daniel Gilbert, who says in his TED Talk, quote, human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they are finished, end quote. And like we discussed with the first point, we can't see that progress happen unless we start from a place of accepting all stages of the process, even the painful and preliminary ones. This initial acceptance, the willingness to love ourselves despite our flaws and invest the time and energy into improving, this is often the hardest part. And we'll definitely talk about this more next week when we talk about where to actually start. But for now, this leads me right into the notion of perfectionism which I think is at the heart of this episode because it's often the biggest thing that holds us back. So many of us were brought up to feel shame anytime we fell short of perfection. The expectation, we think, is that we can do it all, all the same time, all the time, and we can never let them see us sweat. But the reality is that perfectionism is a false destination that sets us up for failure and only contributes to the cycle of shame. Perfectionism is one of those things that doesn't sound like a real problem. You know, we've all heard people use it as bragging disguised as humility. Like, uh, <laughs> oh, my greatest weakness? Yeah, definitely the fact that everything I do has to be perfect. It is so hard being so good. <laughs> but the perfectionism I'm talking about isn't this kind. It's the kind that holds you back because of your crippling fear of seeming flawed, regardless of the inescapable fact that you are as flawed as everyone else. It's the fear of failure that stops you from starting. It's the striving and the hustling that won't let you be content, proud, or satisfied until the impossible day when you live up to an impossible ideal. It's the perfectionism that feeds anxiety, chronic stress, eating disorders, addiction, and so much more. It's important to distinguish here between striving to be the best you can be and perfectionism. Because anyone who's ever excelled at anything will be the first to tell you that they did not get where they are by accepting mediocrity. Whether it's pro-athletics, a perfect GPA, getting accepted into a really competitive program, whatever it is, all these things are definitely doable, and they require you to strive for extraordinary accomplishment. But healthy striving is different from perfectionism, which, to me, is the refusal to accept anything from yourself that is less than perfect, the kind of attitude that can hold you back from starting at all. For example, I have to battle perfectionism every time I release an episode here, because as much as I want the show to be perfect, if I only accepted perfection from myself, you would not be hearing any of this. I have to accept that I'm going to make mistakes, that I'm going to say things I wish I hadn't, and I'm also going to regret not saying other things, and trust me, I do almost every single time. Perfectionism is the armor that you think will protect you from seeming flawed to the rest of the world. But in reality, it is so heavy and cumbersome to wear all the time that it won't even let you move. It's the opposite of compassion, the opposite of acceptance, and counterintuitively, it's the opposite of taking the risks that you need to take if you're going to do anything extraordinary or brave with your life. We can't blame ourselves entirely for this. Perfectionism often stems from expectations that we've internalized from a lifetime of confusing societal messages especially for people socialized as women. 
And let's not forget that historically, these messages have been used to keep women down. As Anne Lamott writes, quote, perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor, end quote. But once we've become aware of these often conflicting messages about who we're supposed to be as, you know, as daughters, as wives, mothers, friends, it's our responsibility to stop reinforcing them by buying into these expectations ourselves and to stop holding them against other women. We'll come back to this in a minute. Dr. Brene Brown's work on the relationship between shame and perfectionism explains all this wonderfully, and I've been drawing on it throughout this episode. You can get more information in the show notes. In her first book, she explains how we have a tendency to edit all of the things we see as perfect in other people into one Frankenstein ideal image of perfection, and then use that as the standard against which we compare ourselves. Take a second to imagine what this looks like for you. For instance, my ideal of perfection is a patchwork of what I admire in other women, whether they're celebrities or close friends of mine. Person A's intelligence, B's legs, C's work ethic, D's artistic abilities, and then it even gets to downright ridiculous things like person E's split times on the rowing machine, person G's wardrobe, person N's social agenda. Because wouldn't it be so cool to look like a supermodel, but be the fastest women's lightweight on the team, but also party every weekend when I know that I'm an introvert, I know why I quit rowing, and I know I am more than my physical appearance? As Dr. Brown writes, quote, Our concept of perfection is so unrealistic that it can't exist in one person. Instead, it's a combination of pieces or snippets of what's perceived as perfect. We don't just want to be good at what we do, we want to be perfect. We want to edit together all the best clips of what we see to form our lives, end quote. This is damaging not only because it sets impossible expectations for ourselves and inevitably leads to disappointment, but also because it reduces other women, or other people generally, to just those perfect-looking parts, erasing their complexity, their struggles, their humanity. And to go back to the difference between healthy striving and perfectionism, it isn't necessarily a bad thing to strive to be your ideal self, your highest self, you know, to try to be the best person you can be based on the person you want to be. Rather, it's when we strive to fit other people's version of perfection, society's version of perfection, that we start to fall apart and we lose sight of our true selves. Even worse than that, and I'll admit this is something that was really hard for me to learn, the impossible and oppressive expectations that we internalize and place on ourselves are actually the same as the ones we place on others. So not only does this ideal set us up for disappointment in ourselves, it sets us up to be continually disappointed by others. Put simply, we judge other people as harshly as we judge ourselves. It's that simple, y'all. Our ability to be compassionate with others is defined and limited by our ability to be compassionate with ourselves. Hold on, I'm going to say that again. Our ability to be compassionate with others is defined and limited by our ability to be compassionate with ourselves. If you're not being gentle with yourself because you can't accept anything less than perfection, it doesn't just hurt you. It hurts everyone in your life, everyone you love, because you're unfairly expecting perfection from them. And with that high a bar, they can only disappoint you. So going back to the idea of working on yourself, you can't work on yourself unless you let go of the expectation that you can fix yourself, achieve perfect neurotypicality, and never feel or think bad things again. Working on yourself doesn't mean working towards having perfect mental health. A couple episodes ago, I talked about what I think it means to be healthy, 
and if you'll recall, my definition hinges on resilience to sickness or adversity, not a lack of it altogether. In other words, my goal in my mental health journey isn't for me to never experience anxious, depressed, stressed, or shameful moods ever again. My goal is to learn how to cope with these feelings in constructive ways, rather than in ways that erode my identity, my confidence, and my self-love. And this is exactly what Dr. Brown writes about, too. In her words, the most resilient women in her research were the ones who spoke less about perfection and more about growth. And because I'm feeling generous, I'm just going to read some of what she writes to you guys. And I, I swear, this podcast wasn't sponsored or anything, but honestly, Brene, if you ever want to collab, girl, you know what to do. I'm here. My email's in the show notes. <laughs> Anyways, here's what she's got to say. Quote, Improvement is a far more realistic goal than perfection. Merely letting go of unattainable goals makes us less susceptible to shame. When we believe we must be this, we ignore who or what we actually are, our capacity, and our limitations. We start from the image of perfection, and of course, from perfection, there is nowhere to go but down. When we think, I want my parents to see me as the perfect daughter, all we can do is fail. First, perfection is unattainable. Second, we can't control how people perceive us. Lastly, there is no way that we can do every single thing that is expected of us or that we expect of ourselves. When our goal is growth and we say, I'd like to improve this, we start from where and who we are. When we give ourselves permission to be imperfect, when we find self-worth despite our imperfections, when we build connection networks that affirm and value us as imperfect beings, we are much more capable of change. You cannot shame or belittle people into changing. This means we can't use self-hate to lose weight. We can't shame ourselves into becoming better parents. And we can't belittle ourselves or our families into becoming who we need them to be. Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. End quote. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Could not have said it better myself. This feels like a good note on which to end part one. Today, we talked about what it means to quote-unquote work on yourself, and also what it doesn't mean. To recap, working on yourself means investing time and energy into understanding how you think so you can understand the ways you get in your own way and ultimately grow as a person from it. We also debunked two major misconceptions about working on yourself. The first is the myth that working on yourself means fixing yourself, when in reality, you don't need fixing because you're worthy of love at all stages of your process. And the second is the myth that personal growth has a destination, when in reality, there is no such thing as perfection, and perfectionism hurts everyone in the long run. In the process, we talked a lot about Brene Brown, and since I just yesterday started my third book of hers this month alone, you're going to be hearing lots about her, and I honestly don't have anything to apologize for there. Next week, we'll talk about actionable things that you can do to actually work on yourself, I'll share some of my favorite journal prompts, meditation resources, as well as a roadmap for getting started with therapy, so be sure to tune in whenever that's released. Maybe this week's episode felt a little heavy. If that's the case, I want to leave you with a gentle reminder coming from a post that's been going around on Visco that I really like. The relationship you have with yourself affects all the others. I'll see you lovely people next week. Until then, be gentle with yourselves. Don't forget birdwatching goes both ways, and don't forget to enjoy your life.